So <clears throat> I'd like to uh, take the longer time frame that the November retreat affords us to um, explore, uh, begin to explore, make a little headway uh, in exploring what's actually a huge, huge subject, uh, enormous, uh, and one uh, and extend that, uh, begin to explore that over hopefully three, but maybe four talks uh, over the weeks. And uh, this huge subject is one that's often ignored uh, or dismissed or devalued uh, in, well, Western culture, but also in, in Dharma circles. And that is the place and the value and the worth of the imagination uh, in practice, on the path, its relationship to Dharma as a whole, and its place, its worth in, in our very existence. It's a big, big subject. So re- really, over, over the uh, next few talks, uh, just beginning, be- the very beginnings of, of entering into this. And one particular way in, I want to, you could come at it from many different angles, I just want to take one particular way in. Just c- could have chosen others. Um, so let's, in order, in order to take that way in, let's actually put, put the whole thing in a, in a context, a much bigger context. Big picture, uh, if you like, uh, a, a kind of grand conception of, uh, of practice and the path and the Dharma as a whole. Big conception of the Dharma. What are we doing here? What is it? could say in a couple of sentences we suffer because we're mistaken about the reality of things we intuitively think not just this self but things are real everything we assume a reality to things uh, to self and to phenomena to objects to space to time to awareness to all this and based on that we cling we struggle and we suffer the deepest, the most fundamental level of freedom comes uh, through seeing the emptiness of all things. We see that they're actually not real in the way that they seem to be. That's the most fundamental sort of thrust of of the Dharma. So it's not really about uh, mindfulness. That's not the point of the Dharma. Uh, It's not about treasuring the moment or being with what is, or being in the moment freshly, important as that might be as an element or a stepping stone in, this, in, this, uh, in the larger picture of the path. Of course it's important, but never, never is it the whole thing. Not at all. Never would that be the goal. So we might use that language, that rhetoric uh, of mindfulness, but it's only... It's only uh, a stepping stone, an element in a much bigger picture. And that is seeing the emptiness of things and how all these different practices that we have, the mindfulness, the meta practice, the different insight practices, they're, if you like, they're ways of looking that through looking differently, the world and the self appear differently. And I start to see this enormous range in what appears dependent on the way of looking. 
And some of the ways of looking, uh, especially the insight ways of looking, they actually uh, begin to dissolve, to deconstruct this whole world of appearances. And all this, through these different ways of looking, shows me the unreality, the non-independent reality, non-inherent existence of things. So through practicing different ways, look, uh, different ways of looking, I see that things are not real, and that seeing brings the most radical level of freedom. Now, a couple of sentences there, and for a lot of you, that's going to be a different conception of the path than what you're used to. It's quite a different conception. Um, uh, for some of you who were here last year, and over a couple of talks, I elaborated that at greater length and elsewhere, which if you're interested, you can follow up. Within that emptiness of everything, we have the emptiness of the self, of the I, the ego, whatever you want to call it. It's anatta, the Buddha's teaching of anatta. And seeing the emptiness of that, of course, that's very important, seeing the emptiness of the self, there are many possibilities. And one of those possibilities involves the using of the imagination. Okay, So <laughs> there's a way into all this. Let's... let's talk about this anatta, this emptiness of self, just a little bit. Even within that, uh, there are many, many uh, powerful possibilities for practice, different ways that we can uh, reveal this emptiness of self, many, many. But it's worth saying here that uh, we won't, (laughs) it won't just reveal itself to us. Uh, and, And sometimes people hear the teaching about the self and the self is what causes problems and the self is an illusion or all that. But just sort of tutting at the self or uh, recognizing, oh, there it goes again on its ego trip. There, there it is again, the bad self, the culprit, the, the problem. Uh, seeing that over and over again and maybe even laughing at it, that's actually not going to bring a lot of freedom. It's almost... Uh, not 100%, but it might, might actually be useless just seeing that over and over again and pointing the finger at it or trying to efface it, trying to erase this self. So very briefly, just want to run through some other possibilities, again, putting all this, what I want to unfold over the weeks, in a context. So not an exhaustive list, but there are, let's just run through seven possibilities for, for seeing the emptiness of self. And there are different levels here. Uh, one is just recognizing what definitions we have of ourself. I'm, uh, I'm a contracted kind of person. I'm uh, an angry person. I'm uh, wounded. I'm this, I'm that. There's a definition at the personality level that if we sustain mindfulness, you actually begin to see, oh, it's, it's not quite always true. There's holes in this definition. It doesn't really hang together. So just at the personality level exposing the self-definitions and then exposing the fact that they're not always true. They're simply not a solid reality that they seem to be. Freedom opens up at one level. Second is just through uh, meditation, and maybe some of you know this, I'm sure, uh, and the quietening of the mind that comes sometime. And actually what gets quietened as well is not just the mind, but the personality the whole structure and mechanism and movement of personality just quietens. It, it kind of grinds to a halt. It stops being fabricated so much. 
And this personality, what I have so much identified with, is gone. And I move in and out of this state where there's personality and there's no personality. Personality and no personality. And I can no longer cling to that personality as being really who I am. I've seen something else. Third possibility is seeing impermanence. Really training the focus on seeing the impermanence of things. Uh, and I start to see outside, inside, everything is changing all the time. This sense of self that I have is more steady, more fixed. And yet all I see is things changing. Where is this self? It starts to reveal the impossibility of the kind of self that I intuitively feel to exist. Fourth possibility uh, the question, who am I? Very, very popular in, in some circles. Who am I? And one repeats this question, this inward sort of probing. Who am I? And you say, oh, I'm such and such or such and such. Who am I? Who am I? Not to arrive at an answer, but rather to uh, explode, dissolve all concretized, limited answers. Who am I? And one keeps probing with that question. Slight variation, number five. Say, is that me? I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this contraction. I'm looking at this view. I'm looking at this emotion. I'm looking at whatever it is, that consciousness even, that awareness, that witness. Is that me? Is that me? And one sees it's not. It's not. I don't have to cling to that as me. This one, this number five, is that me, can actually be expanded into what's called the sevenfold reasoning. Actually, you... Uh, systematically uh, look in every possible corner, every possible notion of self that there could be, and you, and you see none of them can possibly be myself. You flush it out. A sixth possibility, I'm just running through a list really here. A sixth possibility is in meditation, picking up on the sense of clinging and craving, this pushing away what we don't like and trying to pull towards us what we do like. Very, you can see that very grossly, obviously, but, but it exists at subtler and subtler and subtler levels, this push-pull, push-pull with experience all day long, most of the night long. And one can begin becoming aware of that, tuning into it, becoming sensitive to that movement, and releasing it, and releasing it, and releasing it. And what happens as practice deepens, as that process gets deepened, uh, gets deepened the whole... Uh, Self, even uh, not just the personality, but even more subtle constructions of self, get deconstructed because it's the clinging that's constructing them. So there's a process of just constructing less and less and less and less and less self. And one starts to see, ah, the self is a construction. It needs constructing. It does not have independent existence. It's a, an illusion that is fabricated through clinging. And uh, the seventh one, the last one for now at least, is, is uh, to, to begin to see things that we would usually consider me or mine, to see them as not me, not mine. Deliberately to turn the attention on these body sensations, on these thoughts, on this emotion, this awareness, and actually see it as not me, not mine. Unhook the usual self-appropriation. And what happens then? What happens to the sense of self? What does it expose? 
Now, all that um, I and pro- probably other teachers have, have in, uh, talked about each of these in, in a lot of detail. If, if any of those pique your interest and you want to explore, you can ask me. I can point you in certain directions. But let's make a, make, a, make a point here, actually, that's relevant to the whole thing we're unfolding. Uh, in insight meditation circles, and actually other Dharma traditions as well, oftentimes what you, what you might hear is, uh, yeah, yeah, the self's not real, the personality's not real, but the aggregates are real. And you might hear, what the Buddha said is that the self is, the true nature of the self is that it is, it is the five aggregates, uh, the process of the five aggregates in time, the aggregates being the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the mental formations, thoughts, etc., intentions, and the consciousness. And the teaching of the Buddha is, according to this view, the teaching of the Buddha is the self, the real nature of the self is that just that process unfolding in time. And that's taken as a kind of truth, a truth statement. But there are many, many problems with that view. Well, it's, it's good at certain level. Many, many problems. One is it's, it's not what the Buddha said. Uh, actually, you'd be, it's impossible to find a statement uh, of his to that effect. More importantly... It's limited. It's a limited view. It's limited in depth because everything is empty, going back to what I said at the beginning. Not just the self, everything. These aggregates are empty too. So rather than taking it as a truth statement, what happens if I, for example, in the last of the seven, I start regarding these aggregates, this body, these experiences, as not self? What happens when I do that? And again, there is a a dissolving, as it goes deeper, dissolving, a deconstructing, an unfabricating, not just of the self, but of the whole world of appearances. Something happens very, very profound as one goes deeper, and it has implications about the emptiness of everything. But equally important for what I want to get to in these talks is that that view of the aggregates and the process of the aggregates being the self, being the reality of the self, is that it is limited and limiting psychologically. Psychologically limited and limiting. So sometimes we can pick up a view deliberately. There is just the aggregates here. There's just aggregates here. And doing that can be very helpful because it simplifies so sometimes we're overwhelmed with the complexity of some entanglement and some suffering. And actually the teachings that aggregates is just one way of dividing up all that complexity. Ah, let's look at the second aggregate, Vedana, and the, the hedonic tone, the feeling tone, the pleasant. And it's a way of just simplifying. Instead of everything becoming entangled, you can simplify. So it's a one... Uh, benefit of this teaching of the aggregates is, is it's one way to simplify dukkha at times, at times. But come on, in our life, in the fullness of our life, there are going to be instances, uh, currents, situations, movements of being where that's completely inappropriate. How does that teaching of there are just the aggregates fare in a romantic situation? How does it fare in a sexual situation? You're in bed with someone and you're just seeing aggregates. (laughs) It's an oversimplification that won't be very helpful. It's it's uh, It's not the right mode. If we're going to say yes 
to romance, if we're going to say yes to sexuality and the fullness of what that means, we're going to say yes to eros, then we have to let go, let go at times of that kind of oversimplification and and teachings that oversimplify. It's simply not uh, what's helpful if we're saying yes to that. Teachings of be in the moment, don't cling, uh, desire leads to suffering, they're not they're not the right teachings. That's not the right language. That's not the right uh, direction. I mean, even just planning for the future, uh, making commitments, bringing up children that you love, let alone the realm of desire, of eros, of the kind of craziness that happens when you fall in love, and the dark gods and the possession and all that beauty. So modern life is psychologically complex. I mean, it's busy complex with all these, uh, you know, iPads and this and that communicate. But it's psychologically complex in a way that it wasn't uh, many centuries ago. And in the West, you know, since the troubadours came up uh, out of uh, uh, North Africa, the, Ar- the Arabs, and into s- southern Spain, and that whole. Le- uh, vision of romance and love blossomed in the culture and the Tristan and Isolde and all that 11th, 12th century, whenever it was. That's changed our whole sensibility, our whole sense of self, our whole uh, way of looking at things with all the beauty and all the complexity it brings. And to bring a, a, uh, a fantasy of simplism to all that, it just won't, it won't serve. It won't serve. It flattens something it flattens something that wants to blossom. So, a list of seven before possibilities of seeing this emptiness of self. There are other possibilities. There are quite a few other possibilities for seeing the emptiness of self. One of them is via the imaginal. And one of the advantages of the imaginal is it does not simplify. It's not an oversimplification. It's not a simplistic. It, it can open things up uh, in a different way. So let's recap that big picture, uh, what we said before. We want to see the emptiness of things. We want to expose the illusion of the reality of things. We do that through practicing different practices that are actually different ways of looking, and they reveal the fabricated, constructed nature of perception of what we see. We see, it depends how I'm looking, and certain ways of looking just dissolve it completely. Why is that so important? Why am I harping on about that? Because the concepts that we have, consciously or unconsciously, are immensely powerful. They become the lenses through which we look at ourselves and the world. Concepts become views, whether we are aware of it or not. Concepts become views, and those views have the power to block or limit our experience. Or they have the power to uh, open and deepen our experience. And especially in concepts about the path, and especially concepts about uh, images. So in these talks, um, it's a strange thing I want to try to do. Um, you can hear them and kind of just hear a couple of little techniques that you might use here and there occasionally uh, that might be helpful. You can hear the whole thing in that way. 
you might also uh, hear a sort of something a bit further or choose to hear something a bit further, which is actually weaving in the whole realm of the imagination and the imaginal in centrally into a whole conception of the Dharma that has to do with emptiness, which becomes very central. You could also go even further and uh, might begin to suggest a kind of radical opening or shift or tectonic plate reformulation, crumbling, etc., shattering, in the whole conception of the Dharma beyond what I already said at the beginning. So there's a trajectory over, over three or four talks. You could take a little, you could take a lot, you could take it now, you could save it for later, you can ignore the whole thing. It's like there are, we're on a bus, if you like, and there are bus stops. I won't necessarily call out each stop as we, uh, like some bus drivers do. Um, but at some point, if you're following, it will be clear, as Dorothy said, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Uh, something's gone a bit beyond, uh, or quite a lot beyond, uh, uh, not just typical Dharma conceptions, but also typical um, assumptions and conceptions of, of modern psychotherapy. So there are different kinds of talks, and, and, and this talk, partly it's just a little helpful things over, over the time, over the three, uh, that you can use here and there, but it's also a talk about questioning and shaking things up at a very, at a very deep level. Sometimes it's time, uh, person has to, you know, it has to be the right time to question, shake things up. Sometimes it's a matter of personality. Uh, many of us as human beings don't like to question too much, to shake things up uh, for different reasons. All right, all that was introduction <laughs> for the long stretch of talks. But let's, let's start somewhere very, very familiar. Um, or at least hopefully a bit familiar, not too much of a stretch at all, because actually we already, or many of us, will already be using images and already be using the imagination in practice. For instance, the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice that many of you know, um, we oftentimes imagine the other. It might not be a clear visual image, but we imagine the other to whom we're giving metta. We can imagine them happy. We can imagine them uh, surrounded and suffused by uh, light that is meta, or light emanating from us towards them. It's all imagination. Some people, the way they do the meta and compassion practice, actually imagining Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, or Avalokiteshvara, or whoever, or Jesus, or the Dalai Lama, or someone like that, or your grandmother, who was very sweet and kind. There's an imaginal figure that embodies these qualities of metta and compassion, and one can imagine them and receive that uh, metta and compassion. Imagine receiving that flow from them. Imagine them radiating that, those energies, those qualities. One can imagine being the bodhisattva of compassion, being Kuan Yin, being whatever you want to say, the cosmic Christ or whatever, uh, and one can imagine it in others. If you know Mother Teresa, her secret was to see Christ in, in everyone. So there are those possibilities. In the, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha talks about the recollection of the Buddha. When you're feeling a little uninspired, you actually think and imagine the Buddha. And it brings energy, it brings inspiration, etc. We don't talk much about that practice. 
And some of you will be familiar with tantric practices where you actually imagine a deity and visualize or become that deity, etc. Also in samadhi practice, and we talked about this earlier uh, last week, with a lot of practice, with a lot of developed skill, you can actually begin to just imagine pleasure in the body, maybe an area that feels painful or contracted. And with practice, you just... See, see that and you just decide to imagine it as pleasant and lo and behold, that area becomes pleasant. There's a shift in the perception, opening the perception. What was unpleasant becomes pleasant and stays pleasant through the imagination. One can imagine the body uh, opening and suffused with pleasure or well-being or happiness or other qualities too. One can imagine uh, energy Uh, flowing and moving in the body in different ways, opening up the body. One can imagine and perceive the body as a body of light, an area of light or, or a delineated body of light, luminous. And one can imagine two lines of energy. So, for example, uh, a line uh, of white light, for example, from the base of the spine up, up the back, up the uprightness of the body, perhaps out the top of the head, out the legs, perhaps not folding at the knees, but just going out, and then you've got this triangle of luminous energy. What happens if you just imagine that? Interesting. Play with it. Now, someone might be listening, well, why, why would you want to do all that? Why? Why? They're a bit, a bit suspicious of all that. Well, in the metta practice, the simple answer is because it brings metta. It cultivates metta. It empowers the metta. Uh, imagining Kuan Yin, imagining the light, imagining the other. It, it brings more metta, and the object is to cultivate metta, that's why. And in the samadhi practices, it's because it brings samadhi. It helps bring, bring the mind and the body into that unification we talked about in the first week. Remember, samadhi is not focusing the mind. That's not what the meaning is, just the mind focused. It's this unification in well-being. It includes focus. Imagining the energy body this way or, or whatever, the light, it's, it undoes the knots in the subtle body. It undoes the knots. And this, this here, this field of perception that we call the body becomes unknotted, open, pliant, luminous. It brings ple- uh, what the Buddha calls a pleasant abiding in the here and now. A skillful and wholesome abiding in the here and now. That's how the Buddha describes samadhi. And, just as important, we, through that process of imagining, we begin to see and learn and understand about the fabrication of perception. As I said in the first talk, that's the most important thing in the whole of the Dharma. We begin to understand how this perception of things is constructed, fabricated. If my conception of the Dharma is more about being with what is, being mindful, as that's what the Dharma is, that's, that's the point of the Dharma, then all of this will, will seem completely valueless and actually moving in the wrong direction. But actually, again, it, that's not what the Buddha said the Dharma was. He never says about being with what is or just being mindful or anything like that. And, and it's not my conception either. Okay, so... With these working with images, you, you, one can um, deliberately instigate, uh, conjure 
uh, and shape an image if you want to. You can actually deliberately decide to do that or it can arise spontaneously. Sitting, walking, just around, sitting around, having a cup of tea, going for a walk or whatever, and, and an image arises spontaneously. So it could be deliberate, it could be spontaneous. So for example, in what we just said, that sense of the body being a body of light, it, it often arises spontaneously in states of deeper samadhi, but it's something that you can uh, deliberately uh, conjure, instigate, form. And the body of pleasant energy, again, it arises typically spontaneously, but it's also something you can learn to more deliberately uh, instigate. So spontaneous and deliberate, both. Also, just an aside, I want to, as we go on through these talks, amplify and expand what I actually mean by an image, because it's, it's more than what we tend to mean originally. But just here to point out, uh, body of light is a visual image. It's a visual image. Body of pleasure is a kinesthetic image. So when I'm talking about images, I'm not always talking about visual objects. But if we stay with those two uh, examples, going in and out of a different sense, a different image of the body, actually the self-sense changes. The typical self-sense is being moved out of its usual constrictions into another sense. And this undermines, it opens, it loosens the usual self-sense that's got too stuck, too solidified, too concretized. So even just that is doing something. It's, it's elbowing, it's making flexible the, the sense of self. It's hugely important. But let's uh, dwell a little bit on more directly on um, the self and the level of the personality, and a phenomenon that most of us are familiar with, the inner critic, this kind of self-attacking that happens, self-denigrating, the haranguing, the badgering that uh, we often have, self-judgment. And when that arises, it can feel sometimes as if there's someone in there who's got it in for us and just endlessly wagging their finger at us and judging, etc. So it can feel like there's a person inside. And one possibility is actually to depersonalize, deconstruct that person. Actually, see, it's not a person. It's just elements. There's thoughts, there's belief of certain thoughts, and there's aversion, and perhaps there's hindrances. So what seems like a congeal character, you're actually deconstructing, and that can be helpful. But also possible is, and again, this could be spontaneously or deliberate, is actually to constellate that inner critic, those voices, into a person, an imaginal person. Let it take shape. Let it take form into a person, persons, a figure or figure, an animal, whatever it is, animals. And begin, if possible, to dialogue with that person with that imaginal person. Enter into relationship, into dialogue. Usually we don't with the inner critic because we're so harassed and harangued that we turn the other way, trying to flee it. What if I turn towards, open to, engage, relate, dialogue? And if we open that up a little bit, uh, in dialoguing with this person, uh, I could engage in the dialogue in a way that I'm actually challenging the inner critic back. I'm questioning them. I'm, I'm, everything they say, I question it. I'm bringing all my intelligence to bear. 
And I actually find that I am more intelligent, you are more intelligent than your inner critic, who is often not the brightest of characters. So it's got uh, a little balls, if you like, in, in, in the response. One possibility. The other possibility is actually to uh, try and understand this inner critic character, to bring kindness, empathy uh, into that, softness in, in, the, in, the, in the dialogue, in the approach. So both deconstructing, depersonalizing into elements is helpful and also can be letting it constitute into a more formed image and entering into a relationship with that image. Both can be helpful. It is not the case that only the first is ultimately true. Actually, it's not neither ultimately true. It's not really the ultimate truth of this inner critic that it is just thoughts, feelings, aggregates, etc. Not ultimately true. Both are helpful. Well, sometimes when we dialogue, when we enter into this kind of imaginal relationship a little bit, we're just talking about the inner critic now, we actually see that what seems like an inner critic turns out not to be an inner critic. I need to get closer and I see, oh, it's not an inner critic at all. It might turn out, for instance, to be a kind of familiar but clumsy old protector. It's saying and doing all this and harangue. It wants to protect you from being uh, shamed or rejected or failing or this or that. And it's just in- incredibly clumsy, he, she, it, in, in how it's going about it. So what happens if then I, I get that sense of this clumsy old uh, protector and let the imagination of that, let the image of that fill out, explore it, relate to it. Maybe it transforms, maybe it doesn't. But there's the possibility of a dialogue, there's a possibility of relationship. Someone a while ago on retreat um, suggested this to, and then she had a lot of inner critic, and then, and then she, began, she turned towards that voice, and she asked it what it wanted, and asked it why, why it criticized so much. And to her enormous surprise, she heard... A, a, a very gentle, very loving, kind voice reply in response, saying, I want you to use your full potential. I want you to use your full potential. And she was so surprised and so touched by the meaning and also the kindness imbued in that. Uh, it brought her to tears. And something completely softened and, and uh, melted. Is it really the inner critic when we think it is? I have a friend who talks a lot in certain situations about her inner critic coming up. She calls it superego. But I, sometimes I wonder, is it really that or is it conscience? Is it your conscience coming up? Is it, if we use a certain word, is it some angel? And I don't mean that word in the sort of twee new age way. I mean it more like someone like Rilke would use it, some, something formidable. Some angel that's actually wanting more maybe more authenticity, more energy, more connection, more listening. Maybe it wants more work, heaven forbid. Maybe it wants an expression of something that typically we judge, and that's the inner critic, is judging this expression that is being called for, this manifestation which has a certain style we judge not to be okay or spiritual or appropriate or whatever. That's something 
going to return to in later talks. So careful of the assumptions and oversimplification or oversimplified models uh, of the self or, or psychological models. Uh, a friend was on retreat uh, a while ago and uh, we were in an interview and and um, she was talking about a lot of pressure, the sense of pressure in the retreat that she felt, that there was so much pressure on herself. Uh, she, or, she felt a lot of pressure to really work hard and do it, and it was constricting the whole retreat, and it felt uh, very uh, oppressive. And the assumption was it's the inner critic. That's, that's how she languaged it, and that was the assumption. And we were talking a little bit, and she said, uh, her mum, who had died uh, not, not too long previously, uh, not sure exactly how long. Her, my mom was so wonderful, she said, and she said, it's, it's hard to live up to that standard. So what started off the inner critic, she segued without even quite realizing it into this talk about her dead mom. And she said to her, you know, she's still alive. She's still alive uh, as an image as, a, if you like, a, a person in the psyche uh, with a certain autonomy. She's actually still alive. Now, she knew exactly what I meant. And we're not talking about someone who was in denial about her mum actually being dead. And we're not talking about a kind of spiritualism about communicating with, uh, you know, with the seance boards and all, all that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about images. And what exists for us and has power for us as image and resonance and depth and what moves the soul... So she got it. And I said, there's a kind of duty there. There's a duty. But that word uh, can be so heavy for us in English. I don't know another word right now. But I said, you have, maybe you have a duty to that. A duty to that image. And maybe that duty is a beautiful duty. It's a beautiful duty. And maybe her, the mother, maybe her kindness... Her generosity and all these other wonderful things wants to come through you. Maybe she, in other words, the image, maybe she wants that. She wants that to flow through you, maybe. And she resonated enormously with this and uh, wrote, wrote to me some, sometime afterwards about how, how freeing it was and how touching and how beautiful, how life-changing it was as a shift in perspective. And opening up the perspective. And again, not concretizing anything. It's not spiritualism and it's not denial about the fact of some person's death. We're talking about ways of looking. Shifts of perspective that can be entertained. Now it's complex too because there are other patterns that needed to be let go. So it wasn't completely that simple. But sometimes again, uh, we need to explore something more fully on an imaginal level. This person says... Oh, he's so driven, or I'm so driven, or they're a perfectionist, or whatever. And with typical assumptions, that's terrible. How awful that someone is driven. What a, what a catastrophic thing for someone to be driven from a certain limited perspective. T.S. Eliot has uh, an essay on poetry and poets, and he, he, he wrote in there of how one can be oppressed by the, by the burden which he must bring to birth. Oppressed by the burden which he must bring to birth. We could go off on a tangent about art and the Dharma and how sometimes the 
through Dharma assumptions, we actually limit uh, what's possible in Dharma, art, etc. I'm going to leave that. Another person in an interview came in judging, judging the distracted mind. Uh, very typical, and we talked about that in the first week. And But there's some particular what he said. He said, and all these daydreams, and they're all about the heroic self saving or helping people or the world or something. It's, like, it's just all about this stuff. Now, I could have agreed, yes, that's the self. It wants to inflate itself. It wants to be center stage. It wants to cast itself as brilliant, of course. But hearing the assumptions underneath, uh, implicitly there, sometimes they're spoken, sometimes they're, they're underneath, that, A, it's an ego trip. All these daydreams are basically ego trips. Their ego in self-building, self-inflation, papancha, ego proliferation. That assumption was there. Secondly, another assumption, that the actual motivations uh, was really somehow through all these daydreams or even trying to do that in one's, one's life is actually to seek approval. And that's the real motivation. To somehow uh, get loved, to be loved because probably my self-worth is low or because probably I didn't get enough love when I was a child, etc. That assumption lurking just under the surface or actually above the surface. And so the whole thing becomes mostly a way of, of filling a lack, trying to fill a lack. It's very, very common assumptions. may be true to some extent sometimes, but really, is it really? Have a look. Is that really what's going on? Is that even the greater part of what's going on? Or is it, could it be sometimes that something or someone, whatever language in you, whatever we want to say, something, someone that wants, that longs, longs to serve, in, the, in, this, in his case, longs to serve, longs to be devoted longs to sacrifice even, longs to be heroic. Certain myths are calling, certain myths are making demands, are pulling, pushing. And, and again, in this instance, moved to, to tears by, by that shift in perspective. Something resonated much deeper than the typical interpretation of that. Much deeper. We're talking about a much, much, if, if we use the language, deeper level of the being than the typical assumptions and first, first judgments based on what we've heard and just blah, blah, blah. So, yes, if I say myths are calling me, yes, of course there's a danger in that. Of course there is. But, you know, there's no such thing as a practice or a path without danger. All practices, all paths bring their particular dangers. When we are in the world, the realm of appearances, in other words, out of very deep meditation when appearances fade, whenever there is the world of appearances, there is self. Where there is appearance, there is self. There is always selves. And those selves are always presented. They're always imagined in a certain way. We are imagining self and other and world always there is what we might call the inevitability of fantasy. I say sometimes the necessity of fantasy because there's beauty in that and there's depth and there's opening and there's possibility. The inevitability and the necessity of fantasy. 
what's important is not trying to get rid of that fantasy as we might usually believe, but actually seeing image as image, knowing image as image. This is image. And engaging with it rather than disengaging. Knowing image as image and engaging rather than dismissing, trying to erase. Because then we have the myth of no myth. The rhetoric of no rhetoric. So it may be that, uh, if we use this language, the demand, the push, the pull of an angel or a daimon, if you use that word, D-A-I-M-O-N, which is, we get our word demon from it, is not actually the inner critic. It's something else going on. It's not, nothing to do with a fear in some cases. It's nothing to do with a fear of not being good enough, of, of needing to prove oneself, of not having enough love. It's not about that. I mean, could give many examples. Those just think back to the ones I just gave. We start to explore in a different way, and you start to: Am I really just one self? Is this here one? Is it one, Rob? Is that the nature of the self? Is it one? Are there others? Are there others? Say in or out, whatever. Are there others? And might I have responsibility to those others? Might there be responsibility to those others? When the feeling and the concept is of one solid ego, it constitutes, it will constellate, because of the one solid ego, it will constellate, it will tend to constellate the inner critic. Where there is a sense of a unitary single self, it will tend to constellate the inner critic. I don't know how much... uh, uh, that's actually partly got its place in, in, in the history of Western culture with the Reformation and the Western Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. There was a, 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 a shunning, a dismissing, a putting aside of the whole realm of the imaginal. And that was exactly the time in the culture where the language of self became, uh, t- was initiated. You don't really hear that word or self-regard or self-love or self-this or self-that. It's, it's around that time when the whole world of images uh, was tried to be swept out the door. Interesting. And with the decrease of the imaginal, maybe the increase of the inner critic, maybe. So this decrease of the inner critic uh, can come from different ways. Of course, it can come from, going right back to the beginning, it can come from seeing the self as a process of aggregates, deconstructing. Of course it can and certainly from seeing deeper emptiness than that. That's one way. It can come, this dissolution of the inner critic, through uh, more mystical experiences that can open up uh, at times. Uh, The self-dissolving, the self-opening into oneness, into infinite love, into infinite awareness, etc. And that does something, uh, relativizes the whole sense of self. And those kind of openings, if you go back right to the beginning, those seven possibilities I gave, those are among the experiences that can open if you follow those kind of practices. But thirdly, it can come through opening to the realm of imaginal figures and actually seeing this self is not one self. There's a multitude here, a plurality. None of those three, deconstructing the self as aggregates, 
a mystical dissolution or opening into infinite love or oneness or the imaginal figure because again none of them are ultimately true none of them not not one not a b or c none of them what they are are they are all looseners all looseners of self underminers of belief in a solid self they are all ways of looking that and they all open up slightly differently or come quite differently One more example. Uh, again, person on retreat here. Inner critic coming up a lot. N- never good enough. Uh, judging the usual stuff. He says, that's the usual stuff. I'm never good enough, this inner critic. And we're talking a little bit. Can you explore? Can you explore that voice? Turn towards it and, and explore it as image. And the first thing that came was images of his parents. So this inner critic voice constellated as images of both his parents. But then he was with that and exploring it a little more closely. And he said, actually, honestly, they're not really my parents. Because my parents were really actually way kinder than, than, than these guys. And again, it's not, it wasn't a question of denial about the actual nature of one's childhood, which was so painful I have to pretend that it was all rosy. It, it wasn't that. This person was, uh, had, had done more work than that. And these are, what we could say, uh, realities of the psyche, if you like, and they're not to be literalized into actual parents, and they're not to be reduced into they represent this or this. I'll say more about not reducing in other talks. But in practice, then, he was able to use the sensitivity to his own emotions and everything that was going on as as he engaged with these images. He uses the mindfulness of the body and the sensitivity to the emotion and the emotional responses to them of being fed up, being angry, etc. And what happened was then it opened up into a whole host of persons. A whole cast of characters opened up. I only remember a few of them, but they involved what he called the the good boy, the naughty boy, uh, the frightened boy, the hero, the bad guy, there were others, I can't remember. And this bad guy was actually initially, the thought was, oh, it's evil, it's evil, and there was a bit of fear. But actually, again, he dared to look a little closer, to engage a little more closely, and he said, it's not actually evil, it's, it's like a theater, it's like an actor. It's a theater opens up, it's a certain style. mindfulness with the image, sensitivity with the image, with the resonances that are going. We're going to talk a lot more about practice next time. Mindfulness with the image, as well as, as I said, seeing image as image, creates a safety, creates a safety net. What's dangerous is images operating without our being conscious of them. And, or, or taking them literally. Seeing an image as an image, being mindful of the responses, the resonances, the, all of that, uh, it brings them to life, gives them their power in certain ways, and also takes away their uh, what might be an unhelpful power, what might be an unconscious power. But playing in this way this person and, and many others, and I think one will find that as there's a plurality, a population, a, pl- uh, a multitude is opened up to, the more the 
it goes away from being a one, a singular self, the, the less the inner critic, the less the power of the inner critic, and actually the less inner critic, more persons, imaginally, less inner critic. And this person, this uh, man found, and uh, again, one will find, that through playing this way can actually come a disidentification from the, the usual sense of self, the usual me. So again, we walk around with such a concretized, such a reified, unmoving sense of self, and we just take that for who we are. And exploring more in this way, for instance, brings a disidentification, brings a fluidity and expansiveness, a flexibility in the sense of self that becomes available. Disidentified from the usual me. And in his words he says, all these imaginal persons, they're all me and none of them are me. And that's exactly right. They're all me and, and they're all not me. But with this plurality that opens up in the imagination, I, me, I come to see I'm much bigger than I thought. I'm not what I thought. I'm not what I thought. He also reported, and again, he's just a typical instance because this will be very, very, very common uh, and something I want to highlight, that through all this, he was actually able to access uh, previously unavailable qualities and energies. Things, uh, ways of being, openings, energies, etc., that were not really available to him before, became available through these imaginal persons. So that they were vivified, brought to life, they were uh, empowered, not just a self deconstructed, but a theater come to life, given life, given power. Right, this is the last thing I'm going to say for today, but what I want to say is, is that I don't want to stop there. Because just that much might be quite familiar to some people in here, and I definitely do not... It's okay, it's fine, it's one bus stop, but I definitely do want, not want to stop there. In dialogue, that word, uh, I looked it up, it's not quite but what I hoped it had the etymology, but I'll bend it a little bit. Uh, dialogos. Uh, logos meaning word, dialogue, word, word but uh, conversation. But also um, logos meaning uh, framework, perspective, uh, sensibilities, qualities. So that in engaging with these imaginal persons, we're actually uh, entering into a, a dialogue with other perspectives, other qualities, other sensibilities. And this is where I want to really go beyond where I've arrived to, because there comes to be the potential of uh, a transvaluation, to use Nietzsche's words, it means uh, look, looking at uh, our typical values from the vantage point of other values. Transvalue, I don't know what the German is, transvaluation. You actually a whole what structure of thought, belief, being, way of being, style, existence gets looked at and exp- from another perspective, from another style, and also uh, converses with that style, gets relativized, etc. Something gets opened up and questioned. And if you go back right to the beginning, we get 
we, we get to see in other ways, which, as I said, is part of uh, what we could conceive of the whole Dharma project being, to see in other ways, to see in other ways. It's one way of seeing in other ways. So let's leave it there for today, um, and we'll continue uh, later. Okay, let's have a bit of quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.